Welcome to Ophthalmology and Beyond, the Maharashtra Ophthalmological Society's podcast. Maharashtra Ophthalmological Society is the largest state association of 3000 ophthalmologists from Western Indian state of Maharashtra. This podcast is by members of MOS for the ophthalmologist community of the world covering a broad range of topics concerning the science, art and practice of ophthalmology and ophthalmologists. This series is an initiative under the current leadership of MOS Honorary President Dr Jignesh Daswala Honorary Secretary Dr Rajesh Joshi Honorary Treasurer Dr Rajiv Mundra and Chairman Scientific Committee Dr Ragini Parekh Hope you like this series Do remember to follow it on your favorite podcast app You may send your feedback to MOS Secretary 7 at gmail.com. Happy listening. So, very warm welcome on a wintry night to this episode of Ophthalmology and Beyond the MOS podcast. Uh, this is a, a first part of a series of three episodes. on residency training past present and future uh, we are extremely fortunate to have three very very eminent guests on this episode i heartily welcome three academicians and clinicians dr ashok grover dr santosh honawar and dr parikshit gokte to this episode and we hope to learn from you on this very crucial subject if i have to introduce each one of the guests we probably will need one separate episode per guest so in the interest of time i'll briefly introduce each of the guests dr ashok grover who is a padma shri recipient is chairman of vision eye center and sir gangaram eye gangaram hospital department of ophthalmology he is the president of oculoplasty society of south asia ocular trauma society of india and collegium of aios is counselor at large and member of education committee of the asia pacific association of ophthalmology he has served as the president of the all india ophthalmological society asia pacific society of ophthalmic plastic and reconstructive surgery and the oculoplasty association of india is been the chairman of the academic and research committee of the aios and a chairman of the exam committee of the international council of ophthalmology he has conducted the first national survey of medical schools and pioneered educational webinars and pg teaching programs across the country he has initiated the international council of ophthalmology sub specialty examination he is a pioneer in oculoplasty and he has authored five books 80 chapters and 75 peer reviewed publications among the many awards that he has received he has received a honorary fellowship of the ico the royal college and also the kanal rangachari award from the aios so all in all he is a clinician a educator a administrator a scientist and a very humble soul welcome sir to this podcast 
my privilege to be a part of this program our second guest is dr santosh honawar i suppose there would not be a single ophthalmologist in the country who doesn't know his name he is trained at the rpc uh, that's the uh, rajendra prasad institute from the all india institute of medical sciences and the wills eye hospital philadelphia he established the ocular oncology center at the lv prasad eye institute he also established a residency training program at the lv pei and was a associate director of the lv pei he heads the oculoplasty and oncology at the center for sight as well as the education wing for the center for sight among the many awards that he received he received the shanti swarup bhatnagar award from the government of india for innovation the jerry shields award by the asia pacific academy of ophthalmology and he has also been the first indian to receive lifetime achievement award from the american association of ophthalmology in 2019 and honorary fellowship from the royal college of ophthalmology uk he presently is the editor of igo and must say that under his leadership igo has definitely uh, taken to uh, he's taken igo to new heights with uh, introducing the igo case series as well as the video uh, journal as well welcome dr honawar to this podcast our third guest is a very dear friend of mine of last two decades dr parikshit gopte a gold medalist in his masters exam he also did his uh, frcs from edinburgh he's also done msc community eye health from the london school of uh, tropical medicine and hygiene and surprisingly he's also cleared the upsc and was 55th all india and was, was about to join as in the indian police service but i guess it was their loss and our gain that he's returned back to our fold he was formerly heading the pediatric ophthalmology and community ophthalmology department at the hv desai eye hospital in pune he was a visiting faculty at the african vision research institute durban south africa and the eye care institute at lvpei he is currently in private practice he is a faculty at the dy patil medical college he also serves as the sub editor of igo and as member of the scientific committee of the aios and he happens to be the immediate past president of maharashtra ophthalmological society he has more than 90 peer reviewed publications and he has taught cataract surgery across various continents so welcome dr parikshit to this podcast kumandar thank you doctor so of residency training in india is uh, is is an interesting topic we thought we will take for this podcast and uh, there are many uh, use to this uh, subject so before we uh, actually start discussing about the residency training i i would uh, uh, ask each one of you to uh, look back in your past i start with you dr grover how did you choose ophthalmology as a specialty and uh, what was your experience during the uh, residency training in those days i chose ophthalmology because i liked the subject in my undergraduate days because it, there was a very good teacher in ophthalmology and he took lot of pains to have evening class 
gets his ward classes at night, evening. So he stimulated us. And one of the ex-RP center passouts who was a um, senior resident with us at, at Molana Azad during my graduate days, undergraduate days, he particularly told me that I should strive to get into the Rajinder Prasad Center. Unfortunately, that was the first year when the three-year residency program started. So it's immediately after internship, I could join the RP Center. And of course, I share that with uh, Santosh, that it, uh, the privilege of being a part of uh, that institution, which was at a great height with a pioneer like um, Dr. L.P. Agarwal, who I think has given the direction to residency education, brought in specialities, brought in the national program for control of blindness and created RP Center. So he was the person in charge of education at that time. And that education really inculcated a lot of uh, new things into us. It brought about a huge change, not just in the kind of training or education that we received or the skills that we were trained in. The subspecialities existed very well, huge clinical exposure, but also brought about the habit to work hard, the habit of caring to be caring for patients. And also we had the role models. I think um, he would also think of the same role model as I would, Professor N. N. Sood who inculcated a lot of values in us. So a lot of uh, gains out of that, which we have learned and uh, which have stood, by, stood uh, in great stead for us for a long, long time. So I think that was a very pleasant experience, though, of course, as Dr. L.P. Garwal used to call it, it was a um, prisoner, status of prisoner with no parole. So we, we had to work 16, 17 hours a day, including the late evening uh, group discussions and uh, library attendance, <laughs> which he used to monitor. <laughs> so great times. And of course, we look back at it with great joy, great emphasis on subspecialities. We wrote 52 into three, in three years, 156 um, pathology slides, descriptions so every week. And senior residency was a great period of learning too, with a um, lot, lot more learning of surgery during senior residency than during the junior residency. L great period in overall, and lucky to be a part of that institution. How about you, Dr. Onaw? I, I think I can just say ditto and finish it up because <laughs> I, I think I'm going to speak on exactly the same lines, of course. Undergraduation, we had uh, great mentors and role models. Professor Chandrasekhar Shetty, uh, who was the chief of mentor at that time, was a great teacher and he can, kind of uh, stimulated our interest in ophthalmology. And Minto being a regional institute of ophthalmology had a lot of uh, very variety of cases. It was not just cataract surgery there. It had already evolved subspecialities at that time. And that was a tipping factor in favor of ophthalmology. We could realize that ophthalmology was not just, not just cataract surgery. It involved oculoplasty. Even then, you know, they used to do orbitotomy and very good dosis surgery, et cetera. 
and retina had evolved under Dr. Chandrasekhar Shetty. So we uh, kind of were exposed to the entire spectrum of ophthalmology, even as undergraduates rotating through the corridors of Minto and as interns again rotating through ophthalmology. And that was the factor that uh, you know, helped me decide in favor of ophthalmology. And of course, RP Center was a life-changing experience, as Dr. Grover said. I think it can change anybody's life for the better. Great mentors for every aspect of life. There were some lifestyle gurus to somebody who could mentor you in academics, such as Dr. Vajpayee, who would catch first semester students and, you know, he would make us write short case reports. Not that it would get published, but at least we would get into the habit of writing. And by the time we were in third semester, we were ready to write a small paper for him. And that's how it started and that continued. Dr. Sooth was a great mentor. He was my thesis guide as well. Along with that, Dr. Ramanji, that was a, a fantastic combination that I had as mentors. And Dr. Harish Agawal, the team was superb. And Oculoplasty, Dr. Bethiria was the chief at that time. I think those were the golden days of Happy Center with Professor Madan Mohan just at his peak when I joined. And then uh, Prem Prakash, Professor Prem Prakash heading Squint. Dr. Sood heading glaucoma. It was a fantastic experience. Dr. Professor Khosla, Dr. Dada, Dr. Mahipal being a young faculty, Dr. Atul being a young faculty. The assistant professors were simply superb. So I think it was a wonderful experience that we had in all aspects of life, including ophthalmology. How was your experience, uh, Dr. Parikshit? Uh, what, what made you choose this specialty? I was always ambivalent about medicine <laughs> when I took medicine. In fact, in my first year of BJ Medical, I, I was thinking of running away and you know, not pursuing it further uh, because I had got engineering and I had got into IIT. But then my parents said that since you've chosen it, stick on with it and we'll see what to do later. So I had got MD medicine and I was Dr. V.N. Pai's student in KM actually for MD medicine. One thing I was sure that I didn't want to do it. I liked ophthalmology even during my undergraduate days because we, at that point of time, very wrongly, we thought it's a very small eye and it's something Chatterjee and Parson are the only two books which are quite easy to learn and master. And sorry for the interruption. You get, uh, I mean, it had a prestige. There used to be only one seat of ophthalmology uh, in Peter Medical at that point of time, which I had not got. So, Instead of doing medicine, I thought I would do psychiatry and give the All India entrance, and in which I got ophthalmology. And Sanjay Rasar, whom I knew, had said that amongst all the colleges in Maharashtra, Neeraj had the best ophthalm department. So that's how I landed. I had never seen Neeraj earlier. And uh, when I went there to Professor A. N. Kulkarni, saying that, sir, I want to join, I have come through the All India entrance. I also want to leave after a month because I'm getting married. So in his own, you know, cryptic and sarcastic way, he said, oh, if you think that is more important, you marry, do your honeymoon, and later only you join me as a resident because I don't like residents like that. But one thing we learned from him was, as Grover sir said and Santosh sir said, is he used to work very hard. And he made us work from, say, 7 in the morning to about 10, 11 at night. So if I had gone thinking that ophthalmology is a light branch, well, at least it was not light there. And he was in many ways unique in that sense is he was also a private practitioner. So he had that attitude of private practice of seeing that the patient has to get the best results. 
So whenever we would do, so he made us do IOLs way back in 1995 when, uh, you know, it was not that common to be taught during residency days. And uh, obviously there was no viscoelastics. We had the operating microscope. We were allowed to freely use each and every instrument. There were not that many in government medical college period. But he would let us use all of that. And I still remember if the corneas were not very clear on the day, the next day on the routes, then we would get a firing. And I still remember if the boss would come for a round as a CR, if there was a cornea that was very hazy, we would try to hide it in a side room. Or, you know, when he comes to the ward, send the patient to the OPD because we were sure to get a firing. So that he always taught us. And second is, which is also very unique, is for somebody in private practice and a medical college professor. He was also very active in public health. So we had Dr. Mahadik, who was the district ophthalmic surgeon. And three days in a week, we would have to go out and do surgical camps. So that way, uh, and there, uh, because the camps would be in Mokasil places, it generally would be the male residents who would be preferred because many places, they wouldn't even have restrooms for the residents. That is how it used to be. So we used to learn a lot of intracapsular cataract surgery in the peripheral eye camps to 50, 60 in a day, and also do a lot of ECC IOLs in the hospital. So we got both. And uh, he himself liked doing a lot of oculoplasty doses. Uh, he would get people to do orbitotomies, uh, glaucoma. I mean, uh, the, one senior to me, uh, Sanjay, six months earlier, had his dissertation on manual SICS way back in 94 and 95. One had it on mitomycin C and fluorouracil. So that way, we were lucky that we had a mentor who, who knew and he also knew that he couldn't teach everything. So he would encourage us to go out, attend conferences. So in my three years, I have done all the three all Indias and the state conferences. So that way we were very, very lucky. But yes, it was very hugely demanding, but at the same time, a phenomenal learning experience. I mean, what we learned in those three years, it really helped us so much in our life later. So the common thing that uh, emerges from all three of you is your mentors pushing uh, you hard uh, to learn new things, giving you the opportunity to learn new things, creating an environment in which students can acquire uh, skills when they are doing their residency. And uh, I think uh, we will be talking about these aspects uh, as we go along. But uh, moving ahead, uh, now that uh, uh, you've sort of initiated, all three of you initiated uh, many residency training programs. And uh, based on your experience, uh, how do you think uh, have things changed over the years in the last maybe three or four decades? I again start with you, Dr. Grover. Things have changed mostly for the better. Um, when we looked at the residency programs in general in the country, I always said that we had standards varying from sublime to the ridiculous because uh, we had the best of the institutions, some of them, and uh, the others, the standards had not really picked up. Uh, 
so and there was this vast variation was a major major problem and a vast majority of our residents were getting uh, a training which was suboptimal so over a period of time i think things have improved the initial survey that we did in 2000 uh, on behalf of the academic and research committee showed that the medical infrastructure was very poor the teaching infrastructure was very poor theoretical classes were relatively fine but there was very little if any surgical training but the subsequent uh, surveys and parikshit has done quite a few and a lot of other publications show that things have improved we've been speaking interacting with the residents all over um, there has been a lot of effort at postgraduate uh, teaching programs, some initiated by AIUS and Santosh is doing such a phenomenal work uh, earlier and now um, in having specific classes for PGs at the uh, from outside the institutions so that they can get a good coverage of subspecialities. But overall, theoretical training or grounding in the basic facts or, or knowledge component of it has improved a lot but the skills component and the surgical component still remain a difficult area and i think the major reason is lack of equipment at places lack of uh, enough um, teaching time with teachers or at times motivation uh, to be um, giving surgery or to be teaching at the most optimal level and poor regulation which has been a bane for us at the national level which is also the reason why state governments or the government institutions would not get a funding or not maintain the equipment if there was a strict regulation they probably would and lack of a standard uniform nationwide exam which i think is the one essential that will probably tie down people to make sure that they teach better so that their candidates can pass. Many of these still need to be looked at, a good standard curriculum which is followed, which is periodically revised is also essential. And unless we are able to motivate all of our teachers, unless we are able to regulate the education better, some difficulties will remain. So we have to look at the positives there have been a lot of positives equipment has improved um, national teaching programs have improved teaching in the institutions have also improved the availability of internet and all the net resources has improved the knowledge even exposure to surgeries they can watch on youtube if they don't have it in their center but with all these positives there are shortcomings particularly in the hands-on aspect of it which need to be worked at. Yeah, I mean, I'll slightly reframe the question for you, Dr. Honawar. Uh, you started a, a residency training way back in mid-90s in uh, LVPI. You've been running a, a very successful fellowship uh, program at the CFS now. What were the difficulties that you faced at that time? And uh, what are the challenges you think are there now? particularly in the fellowship programs that you've been running running well fellowship is a totally different ball game but in lvpi which was already a quaternary care eye care facility 
starting residency was like backward integration. You know, you had the, uh, you know, very nice car already. Now you are making tires to the car, you know, something of that sort. So that is a difficult challenge because all the faculty are oriented to teaching fellows. So the level of teaching is very high and they had to be brought down to the level of residence. That was the first challenge, bringing faculty to the level of residence and make them speak in that language that the residents would understand. And that is exactly why IPEP was started. This was an experimental thing that we started off so that the faculty learn how to teach residents. So we had three years of IPEP before we actually started the residency program, by which time all the faculty were quite well-versed to teach residents and interact with them at their level, you know, kneel down to their level and teach. That was the challenge. Otherwise, surgery and training, uh, residents for surgery was never a problem because even when fellows came in, most of them were not conversant with microsurgery. So teaching fellows microsurgery was almost the same as teaching residents microsurgery because surgical skills were almost at the same level, I would say. And um, equipment wise, they were all there. That was never a problem. Teaching clinical examination was uh, one of the challenges but we already had a ZEISS education program, which was a one month education program for residents, which would teach everything starting from clinical history to basic clinical examination that we upgraded to teach our own residents. So it was uh, relatively easy, I would say, than most other places. And thanks to Dr. Grover, curriculum was already in place. We adopted the same ICO AIOS curriculum from day one. And we plugged all our teaching programs to completely mirror the curriculum. Everything that was in the curriculum was covered over a period of two years and three years. So, and even uh, I focus in messages to do the same thing. The current I focus online that we are doing covers the entire curriculum and it is archiving it so that 70, 80 lectures in retina are something that would be used over the next three or four years by the time Another cycle will come, which will upgrade the lectures to a slightly higher level, depending on whatever are the current advances. Yeah, that's that's one uh, one aspect uh, which we'll be talking about. And I must say that uh, having listened to some of these lectures, they're indeed extremely detailed. I mean, uh, I don't think there is anything beyond that that one needs to remember. And uh, I must compliment uh, you and your team for coming up with this fantastic series, and which is available Absolutely. for free. Uh, I, I want to ask you, uh, Parikshit, about uh, about the the training uh, across uh, nations because you've you've been to a lot of places and you've seen the training modules. You yourself taught at various places, and uh, uh, what do you think? How do you compare uh, those uh, training uh, programs with our uh, training programs? How do they uh, match up? Uh, okay, uh, it's. Um, and I, I trained in UK at Moorfields for some time. And I was uh, instrumental in building up the residency training in HV Desai from 2003 to 2009. But here, of course, we must acknowledge the gratitude, Dr. Grover, who initially laid down the curriculum, which made it easy because there was a standard to refer to. And we knew, as he said, there is a huge variation inside India. There are his articles, Dr. Makatogra, Professor Avi Thomas's. And for which I think over the last decade, uh, Dr. Santosh has really taken effort through IPEP, through LVP, and later through the various uh, modalities 
to make residency training better but in all of this you know all these programs can be at best bandage or adjunct the basic training has to be good and that way in fact everywhere in the developing world i mean i've seen indonesia as a faculty with the african vision research institute i could go to say zambia uganda tanzania kenya ethiopia uh, south africa itself there is uh, the training is too long in many places it is four years five years in egypt it is many years before i mean a resident may get to touch the eye in the third or the fourth year in ethiopia also in the fourth or the fifth year they would actually do something and again as grovers has said the emphasis was on teaching teaching theory and teaching practice or the skills was something that you know residents would perhaps take up later so no it's it's not uh, it has i mean i have uh, i have not seen in countries where it is you know greatly better than india in indonesia and all again people cambodia very very enthusiastic uh, students they want to learn but again there aren't enough patients or their uh, teachers just do not have the time or the inclination to pay the attention because to teach skills you really have to stand next to that person and do it and even in our context it is the senior residents who mostly teach the junior residents or it's the young faculty the lecturers who actually do the teaching or like we had in a medical college the crs would teach the jas i mean the chief resident teaches the junior residents the third year ones to the first year ones so the answer to this which all the other two seniors have said is to have a structured program like it is there with the royal college of ophthalmology or in the united states uh, which the ao and the accreditation council says because without that without the external push then it is on then the mentors or teacher so if we are lucky to have a, like i was to have a mentor or teacher who is passionate about teaching and who himself also is very good in work then yes the residents get a lot but well there are places where there aren't any teachers or if there are teachers they are not that enthusiastic in teaching or even if they are uh, well a lot of them don't have the skill set to do it and in which case the residents then have to do fellowships and doing a fellowship 10 15 years ago was a must for many of the residents because frankly which doctor onawar was very polite when he said it but then because they haven't learned that much in the residency it's not their fault i mean they because when we have done the surveys we found that people who get into ophthalmology it has been one of their top three choices or for many it's the top choice it's something that people take by choice even in the western world it is one of the most sought after subspecialty so the what shall we say the basic the input that goes in is is quite the cream or they are good but uh, we still have to have a system because as grovers has said it's from sublime to ridiculous so we have i mean we when we look at it across the asian african latin american countries um well none of them even mexico or they they don't have a phenomenally good program it's the developed countries which Yeah, which is perhaps what makes them better. 
accreditation is the key. It probably will do what NABH accreditation did to ophthalmic uh, or any medical facility. We always did things in our own way, but it helped us standardize and then bring in certain parameters which are uh, evaluated frequently. And when you start evaluating, you know how good or how bad you are. So I think accreditation for residency programs, government driven or private driven or independent body driven, would actually uh, bring up the level of uh, teaching, training, and the numbers plugged into surgical training. You know, some residency programs can actually have more residents, whereas some residency programs can have fewer residents. Kind of uh, bringing in an e equity that is lacking. Some are at a very high level, some are at a very low level, and uh, many of them are in the middle. So I think we should try it towards that. Yeah, so, so you you brought up. Sorry, sir. You saying something? No, I just thought that our regulators really need to be strong. We had, unfortunately, an MCI which could not enforce things. Um, we hope with the NMC coming in that can be better. I think the board has national board has probably done a better job at accreditation and at regulation than uh, the MCI. And now we have the uh, ICOs coming up with an accreditation program uh, till it went haywire. And now the Ophthalmological Foundation is uh, working on it. The OF, which has replaced the education component of ICO, uh, that organization is working hard towards starting residency accreditation. And I hope the Collegium of All India Ophthalmic Society will eventually come up with accreditation for fellowship programs, which I'm quite hopeful. We are all working towards it and uh, hope that we can get the people to voluntarily be a part of it and start a good accreditation to bring about uniformity in post-graduate, post-doctoral fellowships at least. When societies do it, it at best remains voluntary. Yeah, you know, I'm talking about fellowships, none of the fellowships are recognized except uh, the FNB by which is run by uh, Retina by DNB uh, uh, diplomat. There are probably National. only two institutions doing it. Right, and there was a talk of bringing in MCH in ophthalmic ophthalmic subspecialities, which has really not fructified. So I think uh, the new National Medical Council could at least uh, work towards regularizing the fellowships, then will come in regular like, regulation to the fellowships. Otherwise, fellowships are again, uh, they're a can of worms. The range is, uh, you know, as you said, sublime to ridiculous that applies to fellowship programs as well. Now, we had a talk with Dr. Paul once about uh, when he was heading the um, board of directors of uh, MCI. And he said MCI or an MC will not take up the postdoctoral things very soon. In fact, the first draft that came from an MC for an MC had no mention of uh, postdoctoral training or fellowships at all. So I wrote to them, and fortunately, they have made a brief mention of fellowships, but they have no plans to take it up. He very specifically said, You should take it up, bring it up to a certain level, then maybe we will think about uh, regulating it. Our hands are full with regulation of post-graduation and undergraduation. Yeah, I think technologies being part of it, maybe they could be kind of <laughs> brainwashed. <laughs> yeah, I think this is a huge challenge in a country like ours with so many uh, different uh, socioeconomic uh, factors which come into play. 
and also the fact that uh, health being a state subject and it is uh, governed by uh, varied uh, laws and uh, obviously economics plays a huge role in the facilities that are available uh, at various uh, institutes but uh, uh, now that there are a lot of private uh, uh, or uh, non governmental organization run institutes around the country and uh, of international repute and uh, do you think those can be the drivers of change sort of uh, what's your take on this dr honavar i would start with you there have been the drivers of change there is no doubt at all they have actually um, uh, improved the quality of uh, service delivery quality of uh, standards of care everything has been improved because they do a lot of good quality fellowship training and when those fellows go out of those institutes they try to at least uphold the standards that uh, they were trained with so i think that has brought about a good uh, cascading change across the country there is no doubt about it at all but bringing in change in residency program these institutes have not been successful because their sphere of influence is only around them as far as residency programs are concerned and i think it is that most of the medical colleges are either government owned or private owned and the drive has to come from the government or by a consortium of uh, private medical colleges and standard of uh, training may not be good at all in private medical colleges which are captation fee driven or self financing their surgical exposure is much lower than some of the government medical colleges uh, how do you how do you sort of uh, uh... standardize uh, the curriculum across the country i mean uh, aios obviously has been trying it for many many years uh, because of many reasons as you mentioned dr grover it has not been as successful as as one would like it to be so uh, what's the way out i mean we obviously you obviously have uh, approached the national medical council uh, uh, what do you think uh, needs to be done more is the national regulator which will have to do it for the residency level all india of thalamic society or any of the other bodies can only be recommending or uh, putting a moral pressure on them just as uh, they would be dealing with of thalamic societies they are dealing with all other sub specialities also so a combined pressure from the medical community lot of advocacy will be needed for the regulator to start being effective we as aius in fact uh, um, gave this entire book that we had prepared on uh, santosh had put in a lot of effort in that uh, we gave it to the uh, um, mci as a result when i was the president i was invited by the mci internal committee for formulation of the new curriculum and we were told to do it within a few months um, so that it could be um, formalized and started but uh, we gave these recommendations these would have been implemented but the board of governors changed soon after and uh, thereafter it never got implemented as the new curriculum so this is existing in the mci portals as a recommendation of their own internal committee these changes in the curriculum but they were never really implemented so there is a lot of difficulty only because of the regulatory mechanism which has to be firmed up and as i said earlier a uniform exit exam at the national level will be a very important catalyst towards bringing about uniformity of standards 
So that we will ha all have to try and develop a consensus about. I think like next, which is for MBBS, this has to be some an exit exam for postgraduate students as well. Right now, there are 100 versions of curriculum. Each university, each deemed university, each medical college has their own curriculum. Uh, Dr. Parikshit, you've uh, brought out a, a curriculum, a uniform curriculum during your tenure last year. And I believe you submitted it to the Maharashtra University of Health Sciences as well. So I want yeah, you no, to no, tell no, us about... We have done it. I mean, you were a part of it, as was Professor Ajay Shuzoshi and Jignesh uh, Bhai. Well, yes, we got almost people from 48 different training programs in Maharashtra, 72 teachers, and to with them as a consensus, they wrote down a curriculum, which is very similar to what Dr. Honavar and Grover had done earlier. Only in this, we had taken them from the government medical colleges, the NGO hospitals, the deemed universities, and private medical colleges and corporate hospitals. Because when we had done the REIT study, we found that surgical exposure is maximum in NGO hospital-run DNB training programs because they themselves have huge volumes which they are willing to share with the resident because they look at a resident as an asset who will help you know take care of their cataract order. In many medical colleges, uh, a resident is somebody who just comes in and who has to be given a degree after three years. And well, he has to be taught something and in which cataract is a must. So, you know, they are given a few cataract surgeries. So, as Dr. Hunawar said, there is a huge variation. And in many corporate hospitals with their training program, because they have paid patients, if they do not have a lot of free or subsidized patients, they cannot give it to rookies because the consultants don't have the time and the energy to, you know, because it training needs a lot of time. Uh, from the part of the trainer also. So when this we had done, we had submitted it to the Maharashtra University of Health Sciences because that is the apex body in Maharashtra. But again, the Senate of the MUHS has said that, as Grover had said, they would go by what the National Medical Council will say because finally they are the ones who lay down the policy. So MUHS said, yes, we will do it. We will put it as an ideal curriculum which can be followed. And again, everybody agrees that there has to be knowledge imparted. Everybody agrees that residents should do perhaps more research. They are willing to do it. Where there is a difference of opinion is actually in the skill sets. What kind of cataract surgery to teach? How much or how many cataract surgeries to give? And how many subspeciality, non-cataract, glaucoma, entropion, ectropion, corneal tears, Quins, because there is a huge variation in the training programs themselves. There are training programs who have not done a single pediatric surgery in the last five years because they don't have anesthesia facilities. Now, so from the regulator side, there has to be some basic this that this is something which is a must that a resident must learn. A resident should do at least a dozen or two dozen cataract surgeries, manual SI, CS, PECO, both of them, they should be exposed to it. Now, that has to come again from the regulators. And it's not just it comes from the regulators, it will have to be implemented, which is 
which is not going to be easy but then i'm sure it will be done one of these yeah there is always hope at the end of the tunnel so uh, moving on to an important aspect of the training is fellowship uh, uh, maybe two three decades ago it was unheard of or very few people opt for it but now it has sort of become a norm that you need to do a fellowship after your postgraduate uh, course uh, i want to ask you dr grover uh, is this good is this bad is this how do you take this i mean one of the reasons why it has become so important is because of the weaknesses of our residency program uh, otherwise many of them should have been ready to take up their responsibilities as independent ophthalmologists general ophthalmologists at least specialization is always good and we need the sub specialities primarily because we want we have so many medical colleges we want sub specialities to be available in our medical colleges which will in turn impact the kind of training that they are getting as residents so if we want to improve our residency training the sub specialities have to be good and that is the one reason of course more uh, use of evidence based medicine can only come with sub specialty training particularly and uh, the improvement in skill sets also would definitely in patient care would also be uh, a benefit of the sub specialty programs or fellowships existing and they certainly have propelled indian ophthalmology to a much higher level and we today stand in one of the best uh, um ophthalmologists in the world in the sense that we have a great superstructure with a great number of uh, uh, well trained people coming out of this the fellowship training programs from the institutions both some in the government but mostly in the private um, setups so it is a good thing but it has to be tempered with having the right foundation for the superstructure we are developing a good superstructure but we should make sure that it percolates down into medical colleges into development of sub specialties so that we have a good residency program and a good base as well which is the benefit that we should get from the fellowship training programs of course now we have cities smaller cities also with specialists available as a result of these fellowship programs so all in all a positive development just in a side that there is there was such a lot of resistance to developing sub specialty examinations at the ico level uh, from particularly from us where they still don't have uh, fellowship exams in most accredited fellowship programs in most sub specialties oculoplastics is one of the exceptions because they fear that once there are these programs then the person can be sued if he does extrabecculectomy because he's not a trained glaucoma fellow so they have that huge fear and that is the reason why they are not enthusiastic about uh, standardizing and uh, uh, at least having exit exams for uh, fellowship programs uh, i want to ask you dr honawar uh, when when a when a postgraduate approaches you or your institute for a fellowship what exactly are you looking at what what are those key pointers that you would say okay this fellow this guy uh, would be a good uh, fellow or would uh, nurture many more 
similar uh, uh, fellows in the future or something like that i mean i'm just thinking aloud but what is it that you look at in in a particular individual we only about oculoplasty and ocular oncology i think i would look at passion for the subspeciality more than anything else you know talent comes later but if they are very passionate and then they would definitely want to work hard give it their best and they would of course during the course of fellowship learn so whenever i have taken fellows based on entrance exams and the merit that they show in the entrance exam those were the disasters but whenever i have taken fellows based on their passion and interest those have turned out to be the best fellows irrespective of how good or bad their prior training background is whether they are from api center whether they are from a very small medical college it really doesn't matter what matters is their passion right uh, i'll now uh, ask each one of you this question which is i think uh, extremely important uh, uh, in the present context as well it's about research and innovation uh, we all know that uh, the young minds drive research and innovation uh somehow uh, this is my personal feeling that uh, indian ophthalmology hasn't reached the right heights uh, as far as the research and innovation uh, i am sorry that i'm saying this i know there are excellent publications uh, month on month in the indian journal of ophthalmology as well as many international publications but uh, if you look at uh, the the quality of papers or the quality of research perhaps we can do better i want to start with you dr parikshit uh, Uh, you've been a prolific uh, researcher uh, what what exactly do you think needs to be done more to uh, uh, to sort of drive this to encourage this in the in the right direction and i'm not only talking about research but also innovation in ophthalmology which encompasses a whole lot of other allied uh, uh, sciences like engineering like genetics uh, so many other things uh one is i think what um... santosh sir said is the passion one is the passion is now there more and more in the youngsters to do something new something different but generally as a culture and as a system we have always been that you know you follow your guru if your guru has done something in a similar way that is how you should do it and many people are judged by how great their guru was rather than how they themselves are i mean uh, you know but that is changing and that is changing the world over and i am sure it will change it will take because by nature as a culture we are very whatever we may say we are very conservative society so but it will change and it will come and second is in the western world if you have patents if you have new products if you innovate it is directly linked to your remuneration your standing your tenure in a university which is not the case with us now yes mci said yes if you are a professor you should have five publications but then people go and do fake publications or they go and publish in predatory journal so you know it has not uh, that uh, what shall we say the from the top it has not changed the culture as such it is changing but i think it will take time and for that again if a person is very good in the field who knows the basics well then only they can innovate and do something new in fact a young resident a niece of mine she was saying about dr grover is is one of the few who still at this age does cataract surgery does oculoplasty 
does oncology can do a bit of glaucoma and also squint and you know now that generation of uh, this see we don't have any more and in our generation if you look at it we have people who will do two or three subspecialties in our comprehensive ophthalmology practice perhaps a few years down the line it will be even more narrower siloed now if you have to have innovation you have to have you have to speak to others so you have to speak to microbiologists as you said geneticists biophysicists biotechnologists biostatisticians public health people so that also as a culture is missing i mean even simple in the maharashtra ophthalmology society it has taken us such a long time to say you let a non mos member present a paper and even when i was a scientific committee member we have had they don't allow an anesthetist to present a paper he has done some good work in ophthalmology i mean come on he is taking his time to present work in an ophthalmology meeting but we will not allow him you will not allow a neurosurgeon to present something when he has done something on facial now so i mean it it will take time i think this is not something that is going to come very easily to us dr onawar you sit at a vantage point sort of on this particular uh, issue you are the editor of the indian journal of ophthalmology you probably reviewed thousands of papers uh, what exactly do you think uh, how do you how do you sort of uh, 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 say what is the status of the quality of research that that is happening in the uh, ophthalmology community in the country today i think i am very excited at the change you you won't believe it the number of you know in fact uh, in the uh, report of igo that i shared a month ago i had shown graphs how india as a country as far as the number of manuscripts are published in peer reviewed journals has come up right next to us jumping four spots ahead of uk france you know so all that has happened in the last 7 or 8 years obviously and in the last 6 years before that of course i don't have the data i have no uh, way of having the data we have added 3000 new authors indian authors and whereas the uh, membership of indian ophthalmological society aos is 2000 24000 of which 3000 new authors have got added as authors so i think that is a definitely that's a huge huge change huge yeah. huge yeah i number i, I of, take back my words yeah number of submissions have increased by 500 times 500% number of submissions by indian authors number of printed articles has increased by 300 to 400% you know journals are becoming fatter and fatter so we have to finally go online because we couldn't afford to publish I print and publish these journals so obviously impact factor is also rising so i am very excited actually the culture of publication has uh, caught on with the younger generation they love to see their name in the print for whatever reason and that is actually a positive factor because they get addicted to it and then they start looking at very uh, innovative new things and then start writing about it there is a section on innovations in ophthalmology for which we receive regular contribution surgical techniques is partially innovative partially redescription of whatever that is done already in a different format that is also receiving uh, numerous uh, you know submissions residents are writing case reports you should write see igo case reports you would have never heard of these ophthalmologists some of them are not even members of aios they are all uh, you know in their second third year of residency they are belting out cases like anything so i think it's a positive change 
I want to ask uh, Dr. Grover one thing. Uh, uh, research in institutes is definitely uh, going up and uh, we are very happy about it. But uh, we also know that a large section of the patients are catered to by the private practitioners, the small practitioner, the standalone practitioners. How do you think we can encourage them to join in, in this effort, to contribute uh, uh, in this effort? I, I am asking you in particular because you straddle both the, the worlds. You are a private practitioner. You also head a department in a big hospital. So what do you think uh, can be done to encourage the uh, average private practitioner to come out with uh, uh, submissions for the journal? I think I, I share some of the enthusiasm that Santosh has spoken about. There is an increasing trend even amongst the private ophthalmologists to try and uh, report wherever they can, try and collect some series, try and analyze the results. There is a much greater participation in AIUS. And as a result, there is that feeling that they should at least be presenting, if not publishing. So there is an definitely a positive trend amongst the residents also who are, there are some who are right from the beginning wired towards um, publications. And there are some who are um, getting enthused wherever they have the right mentors who are pushing them to try and uh, document what they're doing, trying to set the example of showing that you want to document, you want to bring out what is new. Um, what I would add is that there are some areas where we are still lacking. Um, we've not focused very much on some of the problems which are specific to India with good multicentric studies. That is where I think ARC should pull in the uh, resources we have, pull in many multiple centers to produce some very good research. The quality is improving, but it needs to improve a lot. I've seen a lot of youngsters coming up with innovations in some of these programs that AIS has organized, but the culture still has to catch, catch up one of the reasons which had been holding us up was the amount of clinical and surgical work we were loaded with. So the amount of time that could be given to research to try and document things well was very limited with those people who were largely doing high volume service. And it is with the coming up of the institutions like LV Prasad, Shankar Netrale, RP Center that um, there has been that effort to document as well as um, bring out research as well as uh, deliver the patient service. Otherwise, we don't have the concept of giving a free day to a clinician to document or uh, to put together his research or spend that day in academics and research. So, so that culture will also have to be brought in in order to improve the quality of the work that we are doing. Yes it will take a cultural change, which we all have to strive towards. Very true. And I think it has become uh, very easy now with the digital photography coming up. Slit lamp photography, fundus photography, external photography has become very high quality and it is affordable. They can do it with their uh, digital camera or even mobile. So I think that has also contributed to more documentation and perhaps more increasing contributions. Yeah, there is no doubt that uh, this, this enthusiasm is there. And... Uh, 
what i feel is that you need uh, you need a whole uh, support mechanism for for doing any basic research or even doing a basic submission uh, i myself uh, can say this because uh, whenever i think of submitting a case report uh, there are a lot of hindrances which come to mind uh, you are not trained to write a particular in a particular way x y z there are so many things so and there are now individuals who do support or do help or do train uh, you to do uh, systematic research a research which will count at the end of the day uh, i want to come to the elephant in the room really now the covid situation and also look a little bit uh, in the future as well we know covid has affected uh, all spheres of life all over the world uh we have not been spared and particularly because uh, ophthalmology is not a, a very important branch from the point of view of uh, the covid patient uh i want to ask you dr honavar uh, how has uh, that changed your training uh, or or uh, training for the residents and what are the uh, new things that are been adopted to overcome this situation and to continue with the uh, training as effectively as possible and i know that there are a lot of reports published in the igo uh, on on the covid and ophthalmology but i just want to uh, uh, listen from you first hand i run a fellowship program currently and that hasn't suffered because oculoplasty and oncology being uh, partly emergency partly prioritized surgeries except maybe ptosis uh, patients continue to come and training continues to happen but what has suffered is uh, residency program where routine surgeries had for a while stopped now it is picked up and with the third wave i don't think the volumes have really dropped in fact in some of the organization institutes medical colleges volumes have increased and in the last 3 months actually from november december up to um, you know october november december the volumes had uh, increased by 150 to 100 times in many organizations that was because of the backlog that was being cleared so what has suffered is surgical training as far as didactic training is concerned in fact people had more time to teach during these times so didactic training has in fact picked up and we have kind of got adapted to a newer model of didactic training that is interactive digital training you know like this what we are having currently which was there this plat zoom was available for 7 10 years but nobody used it because we never discovered the utility of it now we have come to discover it Uh, you know we are using it more often so even in residency programs fellowship uh, didactics everything is on zoom even institutions are doing it uh, on zoom so that they avoid uh, social contact so didactic training hasn't suffered it has in, in fact improved surgical training has suffered and patient interaction has suffered Uh, dr grover uh, sir gangaram hospital was probably one of the epicenters of uh, covid so has how has that impacted your department i would say a lot more than what santosh talked about because our residents were away for covid duties for a long long time and a lot of illnesses lot of residents fell uh, to covid in the second wave and again now in the third wave almost 50% of our strength has had covid so um the the entire training program got dislocated for quite some time during particularly during the second wave and now to some extent during the third wave another impact has been because the residents have dried up they didn't come for at least one season another season there was a huge delay 
So number of residents are less, number of those who, who have to present has reduced. So they are overburdened, overburdened at the same time with duties. So that has also had an impact. Of course, surgical training has been the worst um, affected and uh, many centers do not have wet labs and uh, to replace surgical training with anything else is not really possible and that learning of skills number of patients that could be presented th those were all impacted examinations again were impacted we've not had a national board exam with patients for a long time now and possibly not for the next few months as well which is again a drawback um, besides other things so people like santosh picked up that part very well the didactic part um, uh, especially directed towards postgraduates i think that came up in a very you beautiful remember sir way. your call made made me do it <laughs> you remember your call yeah yeah i wrote at the editorial for IGO, uh, which you asked me to do. And uh, in that, I specifically wrote that AIS should do something about it. And since AIS wasn't at that moment ready for it, Santosh took up the thing. So that's the initiative that Santosh showed. Now, Dr. Grover uh, called me one afternoon and said, why, do, why, shouldn't, why don't you do it? Within a week, we had the program ready and we brought in Krishna Prasad for the refraction class and then it's just started over off and now we are having the 172nd episode non-stop all credit to santosh for his perseverance <laughs> you, you, you were the person who inspired so i did to both of you as always <laughs> great work really i i i want to yes sir you're saying sorry sir oh really wonderful work yeah, the this I want to come to this surgical training part. Uh, now, now that we have a lot of uh, module, the, the simulators uh, available for the surgical training. I want to ask Dr. Parikshit because he was involved with uh, introducing the Help Me See uh, simulator some some years ago, much before COVID. Uh, what's the uptake of this simulator by institutes in our state, at least, uh, or across the country? Uh, simulation training in cataract is increasing. I mean, I've been working with Help Me See since 2009, but it is only in 2018 that the entire cataract surgery simulator was complete. FACO simulators have been around, but then as uh, our seniors here said, we always have had so much work that, you know, mentors have always believed that it's easier teaching residents directly on patients uh, rather than doing it by simulation. But as the Western world's norms of patient care, patient consent, and patient safety and security will start becoming important in our country, simulation training is going to happen. Like in many airlines, however senior or experienced a pilot you are, if you want to fly a transatlantic flight, you have to sit on the simulation for 15 minutes so that your body gets used to doing it. So it may so happen that even in our careers, that 10, 15 years down the line, that when you have to go and operate in a corporate hospital, well, you may be a surgeon with 30 years experience, but they will still want you to spend five or 10 minutes on the simulation before they actually let you in the theater. So simulation and wet labs are the future 
and the covid pandemic has you know underlined that once again because as grover sir said at least in maharashtra we have seen surgical volumes for training were affected across all kinds of hospitals government non government deemed universities but the simulation still needs to be used in a big way because they are still very few of them and they are very costly at this point of time but i'm sure they'll be there more yeah i mean there has been some uh, some headway in in uh, developing new kind of simulators for various kind of surgeries for vr uh, for glaucoma as well uh, so i think uh, there is hope uh, in that uh, area as well uh, i want to end this podcast with a question to all three of you suppose you were a resident 10 years from now what would you wish for and uh, uh, sitting uh, in the this position that you are what are the the advice that you would give to the residents training and would be residents i would start with you dr grover of course uh, the learning of uh, knowledge skills is important hands on work is important as we all spoke about and quality education quality training in the basics of ophthalmology certainly but there are certain other aspects that i would like to emphasize those are the aspects of preparing a resident to be an independent ophthalmologist who would be able to run his life as well so he should also get a good training in management being able to run a hospital being aware of the financials um being uh, uh, well trained in man management and all those aspects as well besides of course trained in professionalism ethics is a essential component of professionalism and uh, being a good human being being able to convey empathy being able to communicate well i think those aspects which are only taken up by learning from role models at present should have some kind of a structured uh training as a part of the residency of course um other things will improve technical aspects would have become better we would be able to make use of technology better to bridge the gaps in sub specialty training in certain institutions because there is a good link between institutions there could be sister institutions where certain specialties are lacking or basic sciences are lacking so those would all improve as the as we go to 5g or better technology and broadband and so on and so forth so uh, all those aspects will improve much more education online much more through uh, videos available here and there and the resource material of the kind which santosh has created which aios will be creating so all those things will become important but the basic human touch and the ability to deal with a patient to communicate with a patient to empathize to restore back the once glorious doctor patient relationship how we've seen that graph dip over the last 40 years is very sad very very sad indeed i think so building those relationships again getting a resident who's trained holistically as a great individual who can empathize who can communicate who can build up relationships build up trusts and deliver technically no things well 
that is the ideal world we are looking for how about you dr unal that is said it all i think i'll catch on to the word holistic that is the key you know the goal of any residency training program is to have a a trainer safe compassionate ophthalmologist who does ethical practice in fact in tire 2 and 3 cities 80 to 90% of patients who walk into the clinic can be managed by a competency ophthalmologist so creation of right. good quality competency ophthalmologists who are safe to the patient and who know what they can do and who know when to refer a patient or or should be the goals of a residency program and it should also be successful in kindling interest in training further in subspecialties in some of those residents not all of them because we definitely need good quality competency ophthalmic care in tier 2 tier 3 cities and also subspecialists but not disproportionate to the number of competency ophthalmologists mm-hmm. if everyone becomes a subspecialist then there is a problem because subspecialists may not be aware of say taking care of an acute angle closure he may maybe an extremely good retina subspecialist but what if a patient comes to him with an acute angle closure attack with no glaucoma specialist in the neighborhood to take care of that patient you know things like that or an orbital cellulitis so that is i think is the goal of a residency program if they can achieve it that will be great for the next 10 years i think ophthalmology has a great uh, future it is the curve of ophthalmology is on the rise i think ophthalmology will see much greater heights everybody has two eyes of course cataract surgery will be the bread and butter but beyond that i think the rise and rise of subspecialties is what is predicted with diabetic retinopathy becoming one of the leading cause of blindness there is innovation in cornea surgery extremely good uh, keratoplasty techniques and oculoplasty is rising oncology is rising everything is on the rise i think we see a very good future for ophthalmology your take dr parishit uh i think both the seniors have said it i mean earlier we or our teachers used to emphasize on hard work nowadays today's generation believes in smart work but then as grover sir said and santosh sir said it is finally a holistic approach and a compassionate doctor and it's a book that you had gifted me uh, dr mata the patient will see you now you know all these years at least till the last century there used to be huge number of patients and very few doctors and doctors could do well, practically anything and get away with it in the coming decades to come there are going to be more than enough doctors it is how you treat your patient which is going to be very important because how in the sense the way in which you do it because protocols treatments and everything is going to be standardized so it's that human approach i think which uh, which will differentiate between the very good ones and the not so good ones well it's been a very stimulating discussion uh, on on the residency training uh, uh, i mean there are uh, there is hardly any word uh, that i can express my gratitude to all three of you for taking the time out of your busy schedule and joining and for this uh, podcast and sharing your uh, valuable opinions on this uh, on this very important aspect uh, and i think one thing which comes out at the end of all this uh, distillation of all the thoughts is that we need to have more compassionate ethical and probably innovative uh, doctors ophthalmologists from our residency training uh because the quality of uh, the manpower that we are going to have is going to matter a lot in the development overall development of the nation 
Uh, I want to wish all three of you a very uh, happy new year, a very safe uh, and healthy new year uh, to you and your family and to all the listeners of this podcast. I want to especially thank the president of our society, Maharashtra Ophthalmological Society, Dr. Jignesh Taswala, and our secretary, Dr. Rajesh Joshi, for uh, encouraging uh, this idea of a podcast. Yeah, it's a phenomenal is, brainchild out there. Yeah, so, so this is a new medium which is catching up a lot, particularly among the younger generation. So we thought of coming out with this podcast. Luckily, we didn't have to spend a dime for uh, making this. So thank you to all of you. And uh, uh, I once again wish you a very happy new year. Thank you, Dr. Mandar, for conceptualizing this program on residency education and for having conducted it so beautifully. And it was a great um, privilege to share it with all of you, Santosh, Parikshit, and the MOS. And uh, I have gained a lot from this discussion. Thank you. Uh, you. On behalf of the Maharashtra Ophthalmological Society, I thank uh, Dr. Provasar, Dr. Santosh Anavar, and Parikshit to have uh, taken part into this very innovative and out-of-the-box thinking by Dr. Mandar. Then he had taken the permission, ki, Baba, sir, we, we would like to do such programs. A very interactive and a very fruitful uh, discussion has come out of it. And I'm sure everybody is going to benefit in a big way. Thank you, everybody, for joining. Uh, a big thank you, sir. Uh, especially uh, Dr. Uh, Grover, sir, and Santosh Onavar and our own Parikshit being part of the, the past president of Maharashtra Ophthalmological Society to be part of this discussion. Thanks a lot. This is a Maharashtra Ophthalmological Society production. The podcast team of ophthalmologists includes Dr. Preeti Kamdar, Dr. Praveen Vyavahare, Dr. Praveen Patil, Dr. Rahul Tiwari and myself, Dr. Mandar Paranzape. Thank you for listening.